Hello, welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani, and this is episode three for the very special Earth Week. Uh, it's actually episode number 19, but it's the third one this week. Um, today, the storyteller is Dr. Emily Smith. She works for NOAA, or with NOAA. She's a program manager, and she's gonna tell us all about the various programs she manages. Uh, they're all oceanography related, which makes sense because NOAA. Um, things I had never heard of, like Argo and Deep Argo and a sea level program. So I found all that really interesting and I hope that uh, you enjoy hearing about it as well. And she also tells us the story of how she sort of got into the field eventually. It's sort of a meandering path, like a lot of them are, which is awesome. Um, so it's really interesting. And so I hope that you, uh, you know, are inspired by the things that Emily's doing or the path that she's taken. So whatever your goals are, whatever work you end up wanting to do, it's it's possible. It may, may not be a straight path and it may not be a fast path, but it's generally possible. So uh, here is my conversation with Dr. Emily Smith and a uh, happy Earth Week. Hi, I'm Emily Smith. I work for UCAR at NOAA in Silver Spring, Maryland, outside of Washington, D.C. And I'm a program manager there for a couple of different physical oceanography programs. I don't really know what a program manager is, except that it's a title. Yeah, that, yeah, it is a very, I guess it's a very much like a D.C. thing, like all the agencies know what we do, but it's true. Other people probably don't know what we do. Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, since I'm not a Fed, I don't actually make any funding decisions. I just make recommendations to my boss who then decides to fund different projects. Um, and the office I work in is a little different than other offices. So you've probably heard of like competitive funding, like NSF or NOAA or NASA will put out these ideas and people apply to the grants to get them. Um, and those are competitive because like a review board looks at them and, and you know decides which ones are the best, et cetera. In my office, we have a lot of non-competitive programs. And the reason is that it, most of the things done in my office are long-term, we're talking decades. And to switch programs every two to three years would not give us a continuous data set of the global ocean uh, temperature, salinity, carbon, um, you know, a lot of those parameters that we measure. So we just have long-term things. And that's not to say we don't review the programs. We review them every few years with a review panel, et cetera. <clears throat> but we don't ever put them out openly to be competed for. So it's a little different. But yeah, so the, <clears throat> the programs I manage and make recommendations for is Argo. Have you heard of Argo? No. Maybe? <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Possibly. Um, so Argo, it's about a 20-year-old program now, and it's really awesome. It's these free-floating uh, robots, basically. So we put them out. They're about um, five feet tall. They're like big cylinders, and uh, we put them out in the ocean all over the globe, and they go down to a thousand meters and they hang out there for nine days. And they float along just at the current rate at a thousand meters. On day 10, they drop down to 2000 meters 
and then they come up to the surface and on their way up they take temperature and salinity profiles the whole way wow. and then they get you to the surface and they send out uh, to a satellite their data and they say here's my 10 days of data satellite receives it and then they go back down to a thousand meters so they do this all over the world so like i said it started 20 years ago and uh, we now have six times the amount of data in the last 20 years than we do from the last 150 years. Wow. For ocean temperature. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's so amazing what we are able to do. Um, and this program is actually expanding. It's going to start doing biogeochemical now, and it, it already is in the Southern Ocean. So they're starting to measure things like pH and oxygen. Um, oh. and nitrate and the chlorophyll right yeah so we're gonna start getting this same cool global data set of all these other variables and we have another mission called deep Argo that's just gonna do the same thing temperature and salinity down to 6,000 meters so that we can wow. get the total ocean heat content that's that's really <laughs> deep and that's a lot of data and that's awesome and I'm ashamed of oh yeah of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's <clears throat> I mean it really it, it, people that study ocean heat content know the program but it's like you're not looking at like global signals of what's happening in the ocean you wouldn't have heard of it and that's okay but now you have but it's freaking cool <laughs> <laughs> yeah no I'm it's amazing I mean this program is just the scientists that I work with um, who you know not only developed these initial robots 20 years ago or the concept of them but I mean they went from two to three you know little pilot floats out there to now we have more than 4,000 around the world we have almost 30 countries that are partners in this program um, so it's truly a global effort it's it's like the great example of partnerships and that science has no boundaries you know when it comes to, to countries uh, but the U.S. is responsible for 50% of the array. So we are the largest program in the world, which when I think about that, that I'm in charge of that is a little scary sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's a big responsibility, but an awesome yeah. one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. It, it's great. And just so making decisions of, you know, how to use money. Um, well, like I said, I don't make the final decision, but making the recommendations of like how we start building up the other parts, the biogeochemical and the deep, but not lose any of the core parts, you know, and, right, and yeah. trying to strategically think about that. So that is what um, I do as a program manager. <laughs> That's cool. I have another question about Argo. So these sure. Argo robots, they are put out somewhere I guess you said they float along in the current do they ever like wash up onto land and you have to like go put them back out somewhere like how, do they do they move around on their own at all except for up and down or I guess I feel yeah. like eventually they'd end up somewhere but I don't know um so that's a great question uh so we we deploy them out in open ocean so we don't ever deploy them co close to a, a coast uh just because it's not deep enough now we can reprogram them like we do have them in the Gulf of Mexico as well, which is not as deep. Um, so we can reprogram them to do shallower um, profiles is what we call it. Um, so, you know, they can be shallower, but they typically don't come in 
too sure. Um, they, they, they stay out. They used to get a lot more dispersed because when they would come to the surface, we used to use an older satellite um, program to get their data and it would take up to 12 hours for them to talk to the satellite. So in that time, you're in a surface current, which is a lot faster moving, you know, <clears throat> so they would get moved around more. Now we're on this different satellite system that's newer and, and, and faster, and it only takes about 15 minutes. Oh, it is fast. <clears throat> yeah, so they go up to the surface, they give their data, you know, and then, and if, and if the operator had to send the, any messages, you know, it can do that too. And then it goes back down. And so the currents at a thousand meters are not very fast. Um, but what's really cool is indirectly, they've now given us those current rates and directions because we know where it came up. Uh -huh. We know it's been down for 10 days and then it comes back up and it's in a different place. Yeah. So we've been able to also do current velocities with it, which was not an original envisioned thing. Yeah, Lanyard data. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't think about uh, the differences in current velocities through the water column. So that's a good point. I did not, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not an oceanographer, but so I just didn't think about that because, but you're totally right. That is a thing that happens. I just didn't think about it. <laughs> that's cool. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a great program. Um, another program that I, I actually, I've only been doing Argo for about two years. Uh, I started with actually a sea level program, and it's again this international collective of tide gauges. So it's um, uh, it's a it's an older system. It's about 30 years old, or I guess it's actually getting close to 40 years old now. Um, and it was a group of scientists who, you know, tide gauges have been around for over 100 years, some 150. They, you know, that's one of our oldest like ways to measure the ocean. Um, from a shore perspective and this group of scientists got together in the 80s and they were like you know we really should use the tide gauges we have but determine maybe <clears throat> which ones give a, a a better signal for the for the globe and so they they did a set of they determined about 300 tide gauges around the world they gave priority to ones like on islands because that'll give us a better open ocean signal. Um, and if they were on a mainland, then they only could be like 500 kilometers apart, you know, to, to give not tiny regional yeah. signals, but a bigger global signal. Um, and, and so they maintain this data set at the University of Hawaii Sea Level Center uh, as one of the data centers. There's a couple other in Europe as well. There's the permanent service for mean sea level, which is average sea level for each month. Um, uh, and so they keep this data set of these tide gauges. Um, they quality control it. It's free and open to the public um, so that people can do global signals of uh, sea level and how it's shifting over the, over the years. Um, and uh, so they, I mean, so we fund the data center, but what I think is even cooler is there's a set of techs out there who actually go and maintain tide gauges. Now they maintain mostly international ones because a lot of our partners, especially small Pacific islands or, you know, developing countries like in Africa, 
They just don't have the technical know-how of how to do this, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so these three guys go to these countries <laughs> and maintain their, their tie gauges. Um, one of the guys, uh, Ziggy cracks me up because he tells me about, he went to an Island and the tide gauge was kind of <clears throat> up on this pylon and uh, he needed to get to it. And Ziggy's not a tall guy. And so he asked the locals for a ladder. Well, there's, they don't have ladders. Like that's just not something they have. So they got one of the tallest guys in the village to come over and Ziggy stood on his shoulders. <laughs> do what you gotta do to get the data or do the That's right. Exactly. So, um, you know, so these guys are just really innovative and go out and, and, you know, take care of these really important tie gauges, mostly in the tropics. Um, so through the Indian Ocean, Pacific and, and a few in the, uh, the Atlantic and Caribbean. Uh, but, you know, they partner with those countries, they have good relationships with them and, and this is what they do. And I just think that's one of the coolest things of that uh, program, so. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Yeah, how does those, okay, let me preface So we have all these like water level monitors that we use that have, you know, but they record the data internally and have to be visited and the data downloaded and stuff. Those obviously are not operating that way. They're like transmitting over satellite as well. How yep. often do they record? And um, I think I might might be wrong, but I think it's on six hour. Uh, sorry, I think they upload every six hours, but they can record on um, a minute to two minute frequencies. I have to I'd have to go back and look at the details to. <laughs> yeah, I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah. Are, like they record every hour, but um, it's a lot of data even every hour. <laughs> oh yeah. No, it's a ton. I mean, the data set is, is huge. Um, and, oh, yeah. you know, the, the international data community is always talking about, you know, best practices and, and mm -hmm. how do we make this more accessible to people who may not do, you know, net CDF files, which I now understand what that is a little, but I don't use them, you know, so I could not personally go in and, and pull those data and run it in a model or something because that's just not my skill set. Yeah, um, I don't know what that data file is either. Right. Uh, so it's a, um, it's a common format in the physical oceanography world. But as you know, as scientists, right, like even in the science community, there's so many disconnects uh -huh. <laughs> between all the different communities. Yeah. I mean, you know, I come from a biology background. So when I came into this, uh, this job, I was like, what, what is even half of what you're talking about? You know, <laughs> you're referring to that this is standard and common who who is this standard and common to i would like to yeah, yeah. <laughs> some corner of science somewhere yeah 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 that's funny yeah so does that program have a name or is it just called the sea level program or something um it's just called the yeah the uh, well the the international community is called gloss g-l-o-s-s -S, um which stands for this is the fun part. The letters <laughs> don't match the name, but it's the <laughs> Global Sea Level Observing System. <laughs> yeah, apparently there, there were letters that used to match, or there was words that used to match the letters, and over time it changed because that wasn't apparently a very good name. I gotcha, so I just kept it. But, but everybody knew gloss by that point. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. So here we are. <laughs> you know, <laughs> close. 
<laughs> you just pretend that the word level isn't in there. It works. I know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, global, I don't know. I'd have to go back and look what the original title yeah. was. <laughs> I was just curious because I'm definitely going to Google all of these. And so I'm curious. <laughs> yes, uh, you should. Yeah. I, I love me some long-term research or uh, monitoring or whatever. Cause I mean, that's what I do too, even though it's on shore basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's the same idea. I love, I love a big data set, long-term data. Uh, it's really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So those two, and then I have a, a one small, well, I call it a small project, but it's another long-term. So it's with um, a glider or I should say gliders, uh, in the California current system. And so there's a, a professor there at Scripps Institution of Oceanography um, who's probably been close to 20 years, if not quite 20 years, has run gliders out perpendicular to the shore on, it, on some historical observing lines there and does the same thing, gets temperature, salinity. He also does backscatter. He does gets current velocities. Uh, they're starting to play around with putting like a flow cam on it to take pictures of zooplankton. Uh, um, cool. Yeah. So another really, you know, long-term, how do, how does this, inf you know, cause the, that's a, the California current system is uh, a huge driver for the economy in California. So understanding the changes there and, you know, how that might impact fisheries or how that might impact tourism or, um, so yeah, so it's another really cool project out there. That's cool. So so what is a glider? Because in <laughs> my head, it's like a paper airplane, but I feel like that would not be it. <laughs> yes, but put it underwater. Um, so a glider, unlike Argo, where it just floats out there for free, gliders you actually drive oh. or you program them. So they actually have little motors. <clears throat> well, no, that's incorrect. Sorry. They have... Um, uh, they they have uh, internal moving parts, so like they have a battery pack that will slide back and forth. So if they tip their nose up, the battery pack will slide back and they can go up. And then they'll, you know, then they'll turn themselves a little bit to shift and then they can go back down. So they kind of do like a sawtooth through uh -huh. the ocean uh, to the surface and down to uh, about 500 meters and then back up. Um, yeah, so they don't have like a, a motor motor, but they, again, use the, the currents to push themselves up and down and, and, and move out. So, that's cool. yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. It's like, it's like, I don't know if ballast is the right word, like kind of ballast itself. So I can go this right. way, I can go that way. Uh, yeah. Pretty clever. Yeah, yeah. So gliders are also pretty awesome. And and gliders are like Argo has to be really careful about what it can put on it, right? Because it can't be too heavy. It can't drain the batteries, you know, because you can't go out. And well, you could recover them, but that would take so much time and effort to recover these right, little things. Yeah. Um, versus gliders that you can drive and they're kind of like pack horses because you can put a ton of sensors on them. Now they won't last as long, <laughs> but it's fine because right. you bring them back. Um, so they're a really cool platform and they're really good. Um, you know, Argo doesn't do so well in boundary currents because it's too quick moving, pushes it out, you know, so we can't really use that platform to measure spaces like that. So gliders are a perfect platform 
for those more shallow areas, that faster moving water, because it can fight against it a little bit. Um, uh, so yeah, so we kind of use, you know, different platforms in different areas of the world, depending on what's the best way to get the information. Um, so this, this global observing system, you know, um, is, is, is the community that I work in. You know, we work very much with international partners and okay, what part are you going to cover? Okay, you're going to do that. Cool. We're going to do this. Um, and um, it's, yeah, so it's a very much, I don't know, it's, it's not a world I ever expected to find myself in. I will say that. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like everybody ends up somewhere where they don't necessarily intend to end up, but just take the opportunities when they pop, when they, you know, pop up or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I think what you said about international collaboration is important because like science doesn't observe these sort of arbitrary political boundaries, right? Like the ocean goes across, you know, up against all of these countries and has an impact on everybody. And yep. like things like you're talking about, like climate change impact everybody in some way or another. Yep. So yep. it's good that you can get beyond the political boundaries and collaborate yeah. with other people. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I would say 90% of the time it works. I mean, we do, there are occasions where political boundaries prevent either us or our partners from working better together. And, you know, and it frustrates the scientists, right? Because again, we don't care about that stuff. We just want to study the ocean, pass on that information to people, <laughs> you know, like that's right, what yeah. we want to do. Um, but there are times when politics, unfortunately, uh, get involved. There, another thing that we run into a lot um, is called the law of the sea. Um, so every country has these, you know, we have our physical land boundaries, but out into the ocean, we have what we call economic, oh goodness, easy. I'm blanking. Rachel, we're gonna have to look about that's okay. I know what you're talking about. Uh, okay. We'll have to fill that in later. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's an EEZ that goes out to nominally 200 nautical miles, but each country can, you know, change that slightly if they want to, but most countries follow that rule. It's the exclusive um, economic zone. There we go. Yes. yes. Yeah, um, it's like 200 miles-ish. Yeah. Um, you know, it's different when like countries are really close to each other. So like in the Gulf of Mexico, if you pull up an easy map, it looks crazy because <laughs> like they start, you know, touching each other. Um, but so, and, and what that means is like the U.S. could not put something in someone else's EEZ without their permission, right? Which makes sense. That's their waters, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but when you're trying to do international collaborations, it sometimes causes problems because it's like, yeah, but there's a there's a hole in the map, right? Like we have no data <laughs> from this area. Please, can we put stuff here? You know, and and like I said, the scientists are always on board. It's it's dealing with the red tape and the government to get permission to do that. Yeah. Um, uh, we also with the ARCO program because they are free floating, they they float into EEZs. So, okay, so yeah, so sometimes Argo floats float into other countries' EEZs. Mm -hmm. And most countries have signed off on, you know, like, that's fine. We're okay with that. But then there's some countries that are like, we want to know 
when an Argo float comes in our EEZ. We don't, we don't want you to do anything about it. Like you don't have to move it. You don't have, we just want to be alerted that that's happening. Um, so every Friday I check this email inbox and I, I have a, a fellow right now, she's on a fellowship with our office, helping me do it as well. And we have to send both an electronic notification and we send a physical mailed copy to these different countries to say, hey, just just FYI, floats coming into your easy. Yeah. Can you, this is a little off topic, can you imagine how much like mail or whatever these people get? Because if they're getting something like this little ocean robot that's just measuring temperature and everything, they're getting a notification about that. Oh my God, what else are they getting notifications about? So much information. I mean, it's, I'm not complaining about it because if they want to know, they just want to know and that's fine. But like, God, it's just like the amount of information. So that would be overwhelming. Yeah. I don't, like I said, I don't know what, because it's right now it's 13 countries that request these notifications. Um, and we're only responsible for the U.S. float ones. Um, mm. So like some of these countries are uh, Mediterranean touching countries and we don't put any float to the Mediterranean. That would be silly. We have plenty of European partners who do that. Yeah. Um, we mainly, we deploy a lot in the South Pacific. So we do a lot to Chile. Mm -hmm. We do some to Brazil. Um, my, my mind is blanking on where else we send notifications, <laughs> but yeah. So, and you know, it's a basic process. We send them off. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that, you know, it's, I'm sure a lot of it's for government reasons because yeah. um, in some countries, uh, so like in the U S most of our science programs are run through science agencies, mm -hmm. but in some countries they're run through their military. So like some countries, the Navy is in charge of tide gauges, you know? So then it's a, then it's a, a different level of, um, of information, which is my guess as to why some of these countries want this, because it's a military thing versus yeah, probably. a yeah. science. That's yeah. interesting. I never thought about like how, I mean, obviously every government is organized differently, but I never thought about like how science is housed within other governments, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Huh. Man, I learned a lot today, Emily. I know. Yeah. So these, are, these are really awesome programs um, that you are the program manager for. Yeah, I know. Crazy, right? A lot of information to keep track of. It is. And I mean, I do like on occasion, like I sit down when I start, when I sit down and actually think about like the implications of all these programs and, you know, they influence weather modeling and they, you know, like everything. And I'm just like, how did I end up here? Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, how did I get? How did I get here? I was studying plankton in Lake Pontchartrain of Louisiana. Like, what? You know, from a little town of Thibodeau. Like, what happened? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you achieved is what you did. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to tell how you did that, or do you want to? Uh, sure. I mean, I, I um, uh, I share my story. Uh, I get. A lot of uh, grad students and undergrads get pointed my way. Um, yeah, I get, I talk to a lot of grad students and undergrads, people point them my way. Um, so I'm happy to share my not so straight path. Um, so I was a weirdo in the eighth grade. 
I said I was going to get my PhD in marine biology. Um, I was influenced by my civics teacher, not my science teacher, my yeah. civics teacher. Because <laughs> we were talking one day, her name was Miss Io. Um, we were talking one day at the end of class, there were a few extra minutes or something, and somebody asked her, they said, if you weren't a teacher, what would you be? And she said, you know, she said, I think I'd go study the ocean. She said, there's so much we don't know about it. Um, you know, there's so many things un unheard of or whatever. And I had always liked science and, you know, mm -hmm. whatever. But like her just is talking about how the unknown, like what we don't know. I was like, oh, that's actually really cool. And like from there determined, I'm getting my PhD in marine biology. Um, and so follow that path. I mean, I was a nerd you know, went through high school. <laughs> I know all of us are nerds. Um, went through high school, very determined, going to college, going to get my degree, going to go to grad school. And I did all that. I finished uh, my uh, undergrad at the University of Southern Miss in four years and uh, got a biology degree with a marine science emphasis. Got accepted to University of Texas at Austin at the age of 21 for a PhD program. Anybody listening, no one at the age of 21 should go into a PhD program. <laughs> I don't care if you're a bloody genius. No one is ready for that. It's just, anyways. But off I went. Uh, I did a 30-day cruise in the Pacific uh, that summer as part of my initial research. I started classes. Um, and not even six months into it, I was like, what am I doing with my life? Like, I'm going to be here the next decade. Like, do I want to be here the next decade? I, I don't think so. You know, because like I, I was very determined. I was, you know, like had this plan in my head. Of, this is what I'm going to do. Um, and it was just, it was a compilation of life events. But, you know, I left, I left the program. I dropped out. I went back to Mississippi. Um, kind of like what am I now doing with my life? My life is over at 21 because, well, now I was 22 because I had birthday by then. But, you know, my life is over at 22 because I didn't accomplish my dream that I thought I was going to do. Um, but I knew I was good at teaching and tutoring. I'd always done that as like side gigs. So uh, went back to Southern Miss for a year, got my uh, teacher certification uh, moved to Tennessee and taught middle school for four years and was happy doing that. I loved the kids. I loved teaching them and exciting them about science because that, you know, that's what got me excited about science was about around that age. Um, and so that was all going fine. And I was like, well, I'm going to take a year off and get my master's degree so I could get a pay raise because, you know, <laughs> teachers are horribly underpaid. Um, and actually, if you do the math, paying for a master's versus how much you, I would have gotten a raise for would have not been worked out. Um, so, <laughs> but whatever, it made sense at the time. Um, so I did that, was getting my master's degree, uh, went through some life stuff, got, got a divorce, um, and was finishing up my master's degree. And I'm like, I'm like, well, heck, this was my life, right? Like I was teaching, I was married. Um, like this is what I'm doing and now what am I doing? You know, I'm going to finish my master's. I, um, 
took a graduate level science course with my master's on tropical ecology and um, realized how much I miss science. Like, you know, every day talking about papers and, you know, being super nerdy. It didn't hurt that we went down to the Bahamas for a week at this old Navy base that's now a research facility and did like a week long, um, you know, research where we were out collecting plant samples and identifying them. And I was doing, you know, phytoplankton stuff because I was still interested in plankton. <laughs> um, and it was like, oh, yeah, like I miss, I miss science. And, um, and, and it was over, it was over Chris, the Christmas break. And I was at home with my mom and my stepdad. And I was like, I was like, yeah, I don't know. Like my life's over, right? Again, I hit that point where I'm like, oh, life's over. Like I had a plan, I was doing it and no, I'm not. And it's terrible. Um, and my stepdad was like, your mom mentioned you wanted your PhD. I was like, well, yeah, but it's December. Like schools aren't taking applications anymore. It's going to be a whole nother year before I can apply to anything. And he said, well, that's not necessarily true. You should check some websites and see when the deadlines are. And at that point, I, I really wanted to move back to Louisiana. So um, I only checked LSU. <laughs> and LSU's application deadline was January 23rd. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, I needed to take the GRE <laughs> again because it had been way too long since I took it because you didn't have to take it to get a master's in education. Um, you took a different test. So yeah, so I had less than a month to study for the GRE and to take the GRE and to apply to LSU. <laughs> and I did, I like went to classes every day and like came home and just, you know, or came to the, the I was saying with a friend and just like studied every night. Like that's all I did. I had, you know, one of those giant books and just yeah. study stations. <laughs> took the GRE, did pretty decently on it, applied to LSU with my scores. Um, sometime that spring, I came down and did an interview with uh, Dr. Sibel Bargu, um, who was a phytoplankton person there at the oceanography department at LSU. And um, uh, she seemed interested, but, you know, was noncommittal at the time. I still hadn't heard if I was accepted. Mm -hmm. um, but the semester was finishing up. There was no reason for me to stay in Tennessee. So I went ahead and looked at apartments in Baton Rouge <laughs> and found one and put a deposit down and uh, had to move to my mom's for a couple of weeks because the apartment wasn't ready yet, but then moved into an apartment. Still hadn't heard from LSU. <laughs> <laughs> and this was like May. Um, and I was in Baton Rouge for two weeks before I finally got the letter. <laughs> wow. Well, it's good you got the letter. <laughs> like I had, I had, I had budgeted my money. I had enough money to like make it through July and then I was going to be in trouble. <laughs> then I was going to have to do something. And I had actually like already gone on the education website to be like, anybody hiring teachers? I know I can do that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and then got in and, and, you know, it was, it was such a great experience. And at the end, you know, of my PhD, it, it was again, kind of like, I don't want to go into academia, but I knew that going in, I was like, mm -hmm. I want to work for the government. Like that, that was my goal. Um, and I applied to the Knauss 
fellowship, which is like, mm -hmm. it's advertised as a policy fellowship, but all that I think means is that you go to DC and you work for a federal <laughs> agency. It doesn't necessarily actually mean you're going to be doing policy work. Yeah. Um, but yeah, applied for that, um, got in, moved to DC five or more than five years ago and have stayed. Yeah. <laughs> Just, so yeah, that's awesome. I didn't know about the, the yeah. teaching part in the middle because I met you when you were at LSU, uh, right. whatever that, whatever that time frame was, I'm not even sure I remember anymore, but, <laughs> uh, I was still in Baton Rouge even after I was out of LSU. So I don't remember right. if we overlapped yeah. exactly or not, but, um, yeah. And then, uh, had Lauren on to talk about the Canal Fellowship too, uh, with Sea Grant. Nice. Did you do it with yep. Noah or somebody else? Yeah. Yeah, no, I was, I'm, I'm in the same office I did my fellowship with. So, yeah, I mean, that doesn't, yeah, that doesn't always work out, um, right. you know, because you're not guaranteed a position after the year fellowship, right. but uh, I just, my office happened to be kind of in a growing place at the time, uh -huh. so, um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I didn't get hired on as a Fed because that process is ridiculous. And excruciating. It, appreciating and ridiculous. I mean, that is still the goal, but uh, mm -hmm. just not there yet. So I'm, um, I'm not a contractor either, though. I'm a grantee. So Noah has a grant with UCAR, and UCAR then hired me to serve in this role. So yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, it's not the traditional path, although I don't think there is a traditional path, really, because everybody's is different one way or another. Uh, Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, and I highly encourage, you know, like, um, whenever I talk to people, um, who, I can't remember. It was at LSU. I talked to like so many people who were like master students and they were like, Oh, I think I'm going to get my PhD. And I was like, why? <laughs> yeah. I mean, my first advice when people are like, should I get a PhD? The answer is no, because <laughs> you're going to place yourself out of a lot of opportunities. Yeah. Unless you like want to be in academia writing grants, unless you want to be in agency moving up in the ranks, you know, like if you want to do field work, if you want to do, you know, hands on stuff, do not go get your PhD because you're, you're not going to be allowed to do it simply because your time <laughs> is going to be constrained doing all these other managerial type things right yeah and then also like if you work somewhere where you have to like bill your time you are now too expensive to be going to do that when there are other people that can do exactly it. Yeah, yeah that's when you send the undergrads yeah right yeah um. <laughs> yeah this is exactly why i had not gotten my phd well there's two reasons i don't want to and i don't yep. want to be in academics i don't want to hustle for money and write grants and i want to write papers i don't want to do any of that that comes with that and also, yep. I had such a terrible experience in grad school that I just don't want to do that again. <laughs> so I think I'm done. Um, uh, uh, so you know. Yeah, and, and I I, so, yeah, so to be clear, I, I didn't. I loved Sabelle. She was a great advisor. I had a great experience. But I knew very clearly I didn't want that life. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to go to government for the same reasons. I didn't want to write papers. I hate writing papers. Um, I do like doing research. I don't like then doing the analysis. I was like, I, academia, not for me, uh, but government, maybe so. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. yeah. I, my, my perspective on it is that I like running projects and doing field work and stuff like that. And then like, here's your data, have fun. Yep. <laughs> like, yep. So whatever that job is, that's the job I want. Like, you know, I'm doing most of the work now, but I, I like the, like, I like the logistics. I like the scheduling. I like the coordinating. I like all, pulling all those pieces together to make something function. I like whatever that job is. Yeah. That's the job I want. Um, yeah. So that's like a, a research assistant, I would say. Yeah, probably. Something um, like yeah. that. Like if you, like if you were at a university, like that would be your job. Right. Yeah, um, you just run some PIs projects. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, whatever that job is, which is probably yeah. just the job I have now. But would be, <laughs> but we work on one project just, now. But if we worked on multiple, I guess that would be it. I guess. Right. But yeah, I think knowing what you want, what your strengths are, and not just doing it because you feel like, oh, what do I do next? I guess I should get my PhD. That's the worst reason. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, but there's people that get masters for the same reason, right? Like they've been, you know, you know, when you finish your undergrad and you're 21, 22, 23, whatever, and you look at life and you're like, I've been in school my entire life. I know how to do school. I like school. Well, if if you like school, some people don't. They just do yeah. it and get it done. They're, you know. But if you like school, it's like, well, I, I like school. Mm -hmm. um, this is what I want to do, and it's like, well, well, is it? I mean, like this is. There are other paths. Right. When I yeah. used to, yeah, when I taught my middle schoolers, um, you know, I taught at one school who insisted that all eighth graders needed a college plan. And I strongly disagree with that yeah. as, an, as a highly educated person. That is a terrible idea. You are telling an eighth grade student that you're going to be a failure in life if you don't go to college. And yeah, that's, that's complete crap. Yeah. I mean, I would tell my students, because I had some students who I was like, these poor kids are not, they are not college material, and that's okay. I would tell them, I'm like, there are so many jobs out there that you're going to make more money than me as a teacher. Plumbers, electrician, trade positions, you know, that do not yeah. require college education. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, no, I got into arguments with my principal. I got along well with her um, <laughs> about this. I'm like, yeah. you are setting some of these kids up for failure. Mm -hmm. And I don't agree with that. Right. Or it's like perceived failure too. If they feel like they have to go to college, so they do, but then they fail. So now they failed out of college and also feel like they failed at life. But like yep. college isn't for everyone. Being a plumber isn't for everyone. Like something in between isn't for everyone. Yeah. I think that like learning what your strengths are at any stage of your life and doing what you think would be best for you is it should not follow something else's you know, arbitrary plan they made up for you. But that's yeah. unnecessary stress and not a one size fits all thing. Yeah. Yeah. College is great, but if you don't want to go, then don't go. Right. Well, and I, you know, also maybe college will be good for them in a couple of years. Maybe, right, you know, because yeah. some, you know, some people graduate high school and they're just not at the mature level to appreciate an education. And that's, that's okay. Like, I don't, I mean, when I was 21 doing grad school, I didn't appreciate it. I, you know, they paid me to go. They paid for my housing. Like, you know, yeah. I didn't appreciate any of that. It was like, well, of course they're going to pay for me. I'm fabulous. Cause that's what every <laughs> 21 year old thinks. Like they deserve right. it. I work with some people in their twenties nowadays and I just like have to work on not rolling my eyes at them. Um, 
because I'm like, oh, you're just so young. And of course you think you deserve everything because that's the age you're at. Right. Um, But yeah, I I didn't appreciate any of that versus when I went back, I, I was 30 when I went back. And I mean, I appreciated my classes. I appreciated learning more. I appreciated, you know, the work I was doing. Like, it was just such a different Mm -hmm. um, mental state than it had been before. Yeah. Yeah. So I started grad school right after college. I had two weeks off, but that wasn't the plan. The plan was to take like two or three years off and do like the traveling technician thing where you like go work for four or six months on this project and as a field person and do this and this. And like, I was just going to travel around the country and go do that for two or three years until I figured out what I really wanted to do, which I knew I was going to go to grad school at some point, but it wasn't like the plan to go immediately. But then that fell into my lap, like, hey, do you want to do this? well, it'd be stupid to walk away from what I want to do at some point anyway. <laughs> so I just did that then. Yeah. But I also was a little bit older because I was always like the oldest in my grade. So when I started grad school, I was about to be 23. So, um, yeah. So I, I was still early twenties, but you know, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if there's anything else you want to talk about. I think, I think now that I know what you do, I mean, I thought what you did was cool anyway, even though I didn't understand it, but now I understand it. It's even cooler. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I I can leave with parting words of advice that were given to me. Okay. Let's hear it. Um, So um, something that my mentor told me um, to help, help yourself grow is uh, every day you should do something that makes you uncomfortable. Mm. And when she told, and she actually practices this, my goal is like once a week to do something that makes me uncomfortable because every day that's like, that's epically hard. Right. Um, and so, yeah, so, you know, do, do the thing that scares you, you know, um, for me, it's, it's making those decisions, you know, like if I make this decision, I'm going to make one person pretty angry, but it's, the best for it's the best for the program it's like I have to do it and I hate sending those emails they do they scare me mm-hmm. but but you know just got to do it um applying to jobs that are not the job I'm doing that I love that's scary but the reality is my goal in life is to be fed so yeah so just so you know do do the things that scare you do the things that make you uncomfortable um because that's how we grow and that's how we get better yeah so, moving I- Moving to Baton Rouge with no idea of what I was going to do. <laughs> Epically terrifying. Yeah. That's awesome, though, that you did that. That's, like, very, very motivational. <laughs> I don't know that I recommend that. I know. Like, as I move forward in life, I'm like, oh, my God. You know, ten, that was 10 years ago. And it's like, I don't know that I'd have the courage to do that these days. But, you know, I might. I don't know. I'm not in that situation. Right yeah. Now, so. Right. Yeah. Going through that uncomfortable thing where you're also trying to like achieve your dreams or your goals is probably worth it, uh, but it's terrifying. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's risky, but maybe not as risky as it seems either, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's my parting words. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Your mentor is awesome, whoever that person is. She uh, is. I love her. She's uh, she's out in Boulder. She um. So she was my mentor during my fellowship year with my office. And then she ended up leaving and, and going to Boulder to work at the NOAA lab out there. Cool. Um, but she's just, 
she is that person that like you want to achieve to be her, mm-hmm. but like, I don't even know how it's possible. She's like the kindest, sweetest person. Everyone loves her. And yet she's also this amazingly strong, you know, pushes herself all the time. Mm-hmm. She sleeps less than most people. So <laughs> I know that that's, I'll never achieve that. Cause I need my sleep. Same. Um, but yeah, like she's up at, you know, 4am do an email man yeah. and I went to bed at midnight and I'm yeah, like, I, need more, I need more sleep than that but, but yeah. that's yeah if that's what functions for her that's fantastic and man. oh yeah no she she I mean she is like you know sleep is a spectrum and she definitely is on the low end I'm yeah. just not so I was like okay I don't know that I'll ever beat her level because I need more sleep <laughs> yeah. um <laughs> yeah I need like nine hours <laughs> Thing. I need, a lot. I need se- I'm, I'm the seven to nine window. Like I, I can function on seven, Same, but yeah. eight, eight, eight is really ideal. Nine is fabulous when I can get it. Mm-hmm. This has been fantastic, Emily. Uh, I appreciate you talking to me and telling me all the cool work you're doing because it's awesome. And of I'm going to go read up on all of it because it's amazing. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks. For, uh, this was fun doing this. I was happy to help. Yeah, I had a lot of fun too. I, this is why I love this because like, I get to talk to people, people I know, and then people I don't know, and I get to learn cool stuff. And just like, I don't know, it's been really awesome to have these good yeah. conversations with people. Yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. All right. So that was my conversation with Emily. And I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed learning all about Argo and all the oceanography programs that are being done, um, especially since they're being done around the world um, in collaboration with a bunch of people. And I think that that's really fantastic. Uh, I'll post a bunch of links to her, all to this projects and stuff on Twitter and on the Facebook page, Storytellers of STEM. So if you want to learn more, go check it out. Uh, Thank you for listening and If you want to be on the podcast, just hit me up either on Twitter at Flying Cypress or hit me up on Facebook, Storytellers of STEM. And I would love to hear your story. So if you would like to tell a story, let me know.